Governor Pritzker issued a disaster proclamation over storms in the state in late June and early July and is leading a contingent of state political and business leaders to the U.K. on what his office has described as a trade mission. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about news of the week from the local housing market, including how big-dollar home sales are down by about half this year. Part of the situation here is not unique to the upper end of the market. It's what we're seeing throughout the market, and that is very low inventory. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, July 13th. Secure your business accounts and start earning more with a WinTrust MaxSafe account. With MaxSafe, you get up to 15 times the standard FDIC personal protection. That's right, 15 times the protection with the liability to secure up to $3.75 million per account holder. Now that's banking as it should be. Call 833-MAX-SAFE to talk with a local WinTrust banker today. That's 833-MAX-SAFE. Peace of mind is just a phone call away. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC. See FDIC.gov for deposit insurance coverage rules. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. As ever, many, many things to talk about today. So let's start by talking about the high end of the market. That's a topic we visit often. But uh, in particular, you wrote about how high dollar home sales are down by about half this year. Tell me about that. Yes. So this is something you and I have been wondering about this year. At the end of every year, I look at how many sales there have been at $4 million and up, which is the very top of our market. Until the COVID housing boom, we generally saw about 51 sales a year at $4 million and up. And then it exploded. In 2022, it was over 130 sales, which is a big change. So what's happening this year? At mid-year, the end of June, I counted, there were 36 sales so far this year at $4 million and up. Same time in 2022, there were twice as many. There were 73 sales. We kind of expected this would happen because that boom was so boomy. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things that agents were telling me is part of the situation here is not unique to the upper end of the market. It's what we're seeing throughout the market. And that is very low inventory means there uh, is not so much to sell. So there are fewer purchases. Several people told me there was opportunistic selling during the boom. I wasn't planning to sell my eight, nine, $10 million mansion just yet. I thought I had a few more years in it, but things were going so well in 2021, 2022 that I put it on the market. So that sort of gobbles up inventory that might have been on the market now. But that's something we got to watch for the rest of this year. It looks as if we'll end the year back sort of at that norm of around 51 sales, but who knows? That's right. Who knows? That's what that's what we turn to you for, Dennis. That's why we rely on you for these things. But let's keep this kind of theme of price going a little bit, though. We recently wrote about 10 suburbs where home buyers are going the most above the asking price. Uh, tell me what you found here. I found another story that is based on very low inventory. I mean, this is sort of characterizing our market this year. Redfin reported in early July that nationwide, the average sale price was at least 100% of the asking price, which is to say, uh, while nobody expected this in mid-2022 when things started to crash, 
we're back to a point where people are having to assume they're going to pay over the asking price. This is in large part because there's very little inventory on the market. Um, I bought my house during the boom or the years prior. During that period when interest rates were in the threes, now interest rates are in the sixes. I'm not going to put my house on the market and trade from a very affordable housing payment at a 3%, 3.5% interest rate to something that I have to pay at 6% for 6% or more. So inventory is very tight. And that means that buyers, because they're still out there, are ending up having to pay more than the asking price. There, there are bidding wars. You and I talked a couple of weeks ago about how I found a, a house that I believe has the record number of bids, over 60 offers on a house. This means that when they get into the market, buyers know I'm going to have to bid up from the asking price. The asking price is a minimum, not a maximum. I feel like it's very, uh, it seems very cyclical, but we, we saw so much of this during uh, an earlier phase of the pandemic, in particular when people were really, you know, going to great lengths to to try to get in with with sellers and kind of trying to woo them. And, it, and you had written about that too. And it was, at that time, it was, let's, it was easier or it was more tempting because interest rates were so low. I felt that I could afford so much house. Let's go for it. I really want to get the best. Everybody's out there. I will outbid them. It's a little more difficult now because interest rates are so much higher. I'm that first-time buyer. There was a great example that I found in Calumet Park, one of these towns where people are really having to go over the asking price. House listed for $99,900, a two-bedroom ranch house in Calumet Park. And the potential buyers had already been outbid on a couple of other houses. And they said, we're not going to miss this one. What the real estate agent told me is they said, we're going to get this one. So they came in at 124000 Wow, that's a jump. 24% essentially above the asking price. So the risk you're taking when you do that is that it doesn't appraise out because in that case, they were buying with a mortgage. Those people we were talking about buying at over $4 million often are not buying with a mortgage, but I'm buying this house with a mortgage. I need to hope that the appraisal comes out at a level that the mortgage can support. But what the agent on this particular house in Calumet Park told me is, they sort of calibrated it carefully. We feel that it will come, the appraisal will come in at this considerably higher level than the asking price. We don't want to go any higher. And, and the bet they made was correct. The appraisal did back it up. And one of the things that's interesting about these places where buyers are having to pay over the asking price is we're seeing it at, at the very high end on this list of towns are Glencoe and Kenilworth. And we're seeing at the low end places like Calumet Park. Everybody is um, in this situation where if I need a home, I just got divorced, I just got married. I should have said those in the opposite order. I guess that says something about my (laughs) life. I just got married. I just got divorced. I just got a new job in a new location. For whatever reason, those life cycle events, I need a house, um, whether I'm buying a $100,000 home in Calumet Park or a multimillion dollar home in Glencoe, Kenilworth. I'm ending up having to pay more than the sellers are asking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, everybody, you can find a lot more reporting on this at chicagobusiness.com. As ever, with all of Dennis's stories, you can see a lot of the, the reported detail uh, at the website. So moving on, but also still keeping with this theme, uh, Bronzeville's record home price. We just talked about this, but it's up again. It's up again. In late June, you and I talked about how there were several homes either asking or under contract in Bronzeville at about 1.1 million, 1.15 million was, I think, the highest. 
when a home is under contract, the listing agent is ethically bound not to tell me what it's going to close at. That And that's just sort of understood. So these agents told me, yeah, this one's going to close in that range. Um, and I took them at their word. Well, now it has closed. And so the record is considerably higher than what we described just in late June. Uh, not $1.15, but $1.35 million. There are four new Greystones built on King Drive, and one of them has now closed at 1.35. Another is closing. The agent described all the same upgrades in that one, so I'm guessing it's going to close at about that same 1.35, and one is for sale at 1.2 million. Um, the interesting thing about this, I just mentioned upgrades. Uh, these didn't sell higher because of bidding wars. These sold higher because the developer was offering it at 1.15 million with X as the finishes. And I came in and said, I want X plus because I want, in this case, they wanted a, a wine wall in the dining room, bigger decks, various other upgrades. It took it up to 1.3. So first point is it's not a bidding war. But the second point is these are people buying a $1.3 million home and they're putting that money in Bronzeville, which I think is a real vote of confidence in a neighborhood that can use that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we've, we've talked a lot about Bronzeville of how there's so many beautiful old buildings there and there's so much just happening there. That it's very cool to see developers really pouring investment into that space. Yeah. And as a real estate, as a residential real estate story, it's been really interesting to watch. You know, five years ago, I was saying, oh, wow, look, record price, high 700,000. And now we're, I'm saying nearly twice that. That's right. And one of the things to point out is, so a lot of the tracking I'm doing there is new construction. Bronzeville is a great place for new construction because there were so many empty lots, as you and I talked about, and I did a whole podcast series on this in 2022. There was so much empty land because of the years of demolition, decay, disinvestment, uh, that you can build a lot of these homes without pushing people out. These are generally built on lots that have been vacant for years, not pushing somebody out who's already living there. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's just keep this theme going. Let's just keep on rolling with home price themes here today. So the city's highest ever home price anywhere south of the loop. That is also a thing on your radar this week. Tell me about this. You've seen the pictures. This is such a beautiful house. I love this house. We talked about this house. Yeah, yeah we did. When it came on the market at nearly $6 million, it's on Dearborn in Printer's Row. It just sold last week for $4.8 million. That is the highest price anybody's ever paid anywhere in the city south of Ida B. Wells Drive. It beat even the highest priced mansion in Hyde Park, which was $4.2 million, which we talked about, I think, in early 2022 or early 2021. I, I remember it was a January story. This sold for $4.8 million. Nobody's ever spent that much south of Ida B. Wells Drive. That's noteworthy. More noteworthy, the architecture of this house. Uh, it just, uh, isn't it amazing? It's a cool house photos at chicagobusiness.com, but it feels like light and airy, but the way it's positioned on this building almost feels like you have a house just sort of sitting above the city in a weird way. Yeah. Well, in fact, you are sitting above your tenant. One of the things I think is interesting is they built the building in the 2010s uh, on a site that had been vacant for something like a century, and it could have had a 12-story building. They put a four-story building. First floor is retail, and their garage, and then they live on two through four. 
So you have an income producing space on the on the first floor. It makes sense because there's retail at sidewalk level in Printer's Row. Essentially, you're living above the store, although the store is a tenant. They're not operating it. It's a very interesting fit in Printer's Row because it's super contemporary. And Printer's Row is all these old historical loft buildings with terracotta trim and really looking like, you know, old factories. Beautiful. And then that gorgeous um, train station at the bottom of Dearborn. This is right across the street from it. So all those are historical houses, uh, historical buildings, train station. Um, And then they come in and build this contemporary building, which has its own way of fitting in. It's all red brick, which a lot of the buildings there are. It has this wonderful screen on the upper floors that's kind of a checkerboard made of terracotta. And there's terracotta trim on all these buildings. While it doesn't look anything like its neighbors, it fits in with them, which I think is a very clever turn they made. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And for a minute, when I saw that you had written about this house again, I conflated it in my head. And I don't know why, because I think the house I'm thinking of is maybe in the Gold Coast. I conflated it with a, with a place that you wrote about that was empty at the time, except for the fish. Except for the... F- Do you remember this house? It was like had big fish tanks and the fish were still living there. Oh, right. And it was something about the big windows. I was like, wait, is this the... No, this is not the fish owned the house and you're just allowed to live there. But for like a nanosecond, I was thinking about those fish. And I, I do wish those fish well. This one doesn't have a fish tank, but it does have a second story swimming pool. It's, it's really interesting that you yeah. have an outdoor pool on the second floor in Printer's Row. I know, that's so cool. And nobody can really see it. I mean, th- of course, in the pictures... We have views of it from inside the home, but from the sidewalk, even though there's this outdoor pool on the second floor, nobody can see it because the way the building was built from the sidewalk, it looks as if you're looking at empty windows, but actually those are the openings on the terrace. So nobody would see your pool, but you'd see everybody out there. Right. Yeah. It's a really cool house. Again, head to chicagobusiness.com and check out the photos, everybody. All right. Well, speaking of cool houses, um, let's talk about the designer behind Maple and Ash and Foxtrot, as well as many other places. You know, I'm always curious to look at designers' homes, right? Because they really kind of go for it with their own places. Boy, and she really did. So we were just talking about Printer's Row. This is a loft on Fulton Market. They, They have some commonalities in that Karen Harold, who is a designer who did uh, the interiors of Maple and Ash, The Girl and the Goat, both here and in Los Angeles, Nobu Hotel, Foxtrot, very stylish, very modern places. She bought a loft on Fulton Market in 2016, and then she added two floors above. So it's similar to the one we were just talking about on Dearborn in that modern take on a, on a historical building. But in the loft part of it, in the, in the part that existed when she bought it, just absolutely beautiful finishes. She kind of gutted it. So it had been turned into lofts, this building, in the 90s. So smaller rooms, um, lots of walls. She got rid of all of it, opened it up so that it feels like a loft in a movie in the 80s. You know, huge amounts of space, but so beautifully done. She added, as you know from the photos, these great interior glass doors and walls built a absolutely beautiful staircase, covered the old steel uh, support columns in white plaster. It's a spectacular space, just that much on that main floor. Then she adds two floors above in large part to take advantage of the view. 
So the you get up, you're it on the let's see, it's a, a two story building. She adds three and four from the on the third floor. She's got this big deck that looks east at the skyline, and then on the fourth floor, you actually look on all four sides. There's really nothing between you and the skyline. So by going up from second to third, she created uh, not only some really beautiful spaces inside, but the ability to really sort of bask in the skyline view. It's so nice. And those upper two floors um, have sort of the same finishes as inside the original loft building. So it doesn't feel as if you've gone from the old building to the new building. It just feels as if you've sort of drifted through this spectacularly beautiful space. Yeah. And, and I think there's such... I guess I liked this one. I guess you like this one a little bit, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, we've seen so many uh, rehabs and so many additions that we've looked at uh, over the years looking at uh, here on this podcast that it, it's such an art to making an addition on an older building to make it look seamless, to make it kind of like pay tribute to the original structure and still be this really beautiful, new, fresh thing. I think that's that's such an art form. And, and she's it seems like she's really done it really well in this space. Yeah. I mean, let's keep in mind, she does this for a living. That's right? right. Yeah. Again, why we like to look at designers' houses. Exactly. And, she, and what she said is when she did this one, she said, I made it 100% my dream house. Nice. Um, oh, and I should say, this is a good time to say, she's asking $3 million for it and she's selling because... She's an empty nester, doesn't need quite as much space. But she said, I made it 100% my dream house. There were none of the compromises that might happen when you're working with a client. Not that she's working with clients who say, you know, give me something cheap and quick. Sure. But there are things you have to do. They want their style. Yeah. And you have to make space for um, staff and, and all those kinds of things. You have to really figure out what works for the client. In this case, she was able to say, I just want the most beautiful thing I can make. And she did. I just want what I want. I think those yeah. are some of our favorite houses, though, that, that are like people that are just like, I just went for it. Or like, I just wanted, you know, like we've talked about some mid-century moderns where they just like went all in on that kind of theme or whatever. I think that's always like a cool, a cool vibe to take into a house for sure. Yeah, I totally agree. And this one, this one is just so nice. And, you know, when she got in in 2016, Fulton Market was sort of happening. When it first went condo in the 90s, Fulton Market really was not even a, you know, a glimmer in its daddy's eye yet. And <laughs> so to get this kind of space, to get this nice wide open space, like an old loft, because she took it back that way is, is a real treat as well as, I mean, so once again, you've just said, go look at the photos, but one of the, I think people should go look at the photos to see the addition on top, which, I mean, when you look at the photo we have of the top two floors additions with their decks, that alone looks like one of the coolest houses in Chicago. And then there's a whole, you know, multi-thousand square feet loft beneath it. Right. But wait, there's more. That's right. Yeah, exactly. All right. Another story that you wrote about recently that I, I thought was really cool. I gave a little preview of this uh, in a couple of episodes ago on the podcast, but wanted to be sure to talk about it with you. The birthplace of Black History Month has gotten a grant from the National Park Service to rehab that space. There's a mural involved. There's just a lot of cool details of history in this space that, that I was so fascinated to, to see your reporting about it. There are. It's a, it's a very historic space and very valued saved from demolition in the early 90s by an association of churches called the Renaissance Collaborative. They got together to save the Wabash Avenue Y. Uh, the building was built in 1913, and its biggest claim to distinction, but certainly not its only, 
is that in 1915, two years later, Carter Woodson, a black scholar, organized a group of people who created what is now known as Black History Month. Essentially, what they said at the time is the study of history tends to ignore the achievements of black people in this country. Let's create sort of a program, an educational program, and a time to celebrate black history. And then over time, that becomes Black History Month. So it is literally the birthplace of Black History Month there on Wabash in Bronzeville. So as I said, it it was saved from demolition in the early 90s by this group, the Renaissance Collaborative. And now, you know, it's 30 years later, there's another round of renovation needed. It's a big building with both residential and recreational spaces, like an old YMCA would have. The The residential space rehab is being funded through one program. But what I was looking at is the rehab of the recreational space, which includes the swimming pool, the meeting rooms, where Carter Woodson and friends would have met to have these discussions, and a just absolutely beautiful mural called Mind, Body, Spirit. This is painted in the mid-30s, so the building's been around for a while, by uh, William Edward Scott, one of the most eminent Black muralists and painters of that period, It's very interesting because, again, it's called Mind, Body, Spirit, and it depicts Black people as engineers, doctors, aeronautical engineers, nurses, which is not how Black people were often depicted in murals at the time. Um, So it was really sort of a, a way to say, this is how we advance. And one of the things the Um, executive director of the Renaissance Collaborative mentioned to me is this was essentially a way to signal so that this is a YMCA where people coming up in the Great Migration might stay temporarily before they find housing. And this mural, in one sense, was a way to signal this is what can happen to you here in Chicago. This is the sort of economic self-definition you can achieve here, here in the big city that you've come to in the North. So it's a pretty valuable or I shouldn't say valuable because I don't mean dollar figures. Yeah, but... but It's a treasure. It truly is sort of a treasure. Right. So it's going to be restored. It was restored, as I said, in the 90s. Uh, it's going to get re-restored in part because there's water damage. Um, you know, it's been 30 years. They're also going to restore the pool, although they have found that the swimming pool, which has been closed for several years, has more damage than they knew. So they need to raise some money for that. But they got 436 thousand dollars to from the National Park Service to do the restoration of those sort of recreational portions of the building. That's very cool. Can you imagine the pressure of being the person to restore that mural in that space? (laughs) Oh my God, I'd be terrified. Well fortunately we have here in Chicago the firm that does it uh, has they were very well known earlier for all their restorations of murals in Chicago public schools and other public facilities. They're also the the group that restored this 30 years ago. So fortunately, we have some people who are really skilled, who are among the best. So I don't know that they feel the pressure quite as much as you and I would if we had to get up there with sure. their Q-tips and right. toothbrushes trying to try to restore a mural. Well, the difference is they know what the heck they're doing. We would be winging it. Exactly. And we just talk about it. <laughs> Indeed. Well, glad glad people with those skill sets exist to, to keep treasured and very important artwork in, in top form. All right. Well, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? You know, Amy, I have a couple of things coming up. One that I think is important that actually feeds right off this Wabash Y is we talk a lot about efforts to build black home ownership because it's a way of building generational wealth. But there's a new report out that shows that there's one 
um, pretty significant obstacle to building black homeownership. And I'm going to look into that. All right. Very good. Well, we will meet right back here this time next week and talk all about it. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thank you, Amy. Coming up after a long run with Coca-Cola, the United Center teams up with Pepsi. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Listeners of Crane's Daily Gist are invited to join good to great author Jim Collins for a one-day workshop in Chicago on October 17th at Navy Pier. This is a rare opportunity for CEOs and executive teams to spend a day with Jim Collins to understand the application of the good to great concepts and Jim's full body of work on what makes great companies tick. Limited places available. Go to growthfaculty.com to purchase tickets and learn more. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker on Tuesday issued a disaster proclamation for seven counties pertaining to storms that tore through the state between June 29th and July 4th, including flooding rains that interrupted the NASCAR street races. Crane's Marcus Gilmer reported that the proclamation covers Coles, Cook, Edgar, Hancock, McDonough, Morgan, Sangamon, and Washington counties. On June 29th, a storm passed through central Illinois with heavy rains, straight-line winds of up to 100 miles per hour, and five confirmed tornadoes, one of which caused extensive damage in Chatham in Sangamon County. Then over the July 1st weekend, a significant flash flooding event hit the Chicago area. While rain started falling on Saturday night, conditions deteriorated further on Sunday, with rainfall totals surpassing eight inches in certain parts of Cook County. Western suburbs Oak Park, Berwyn, and Cicero had some of the highest totals. And speaking of Governor Pritzker, he and a big group of state VIPs are heading to the UK in what the governor's office is calling a trade mission. Gilmer reported that while some details are still unclear, Cranes did learn that Pritzker will be joined by a long list of political and business leaders, including People's Gas and North Shore Gas CEO Torrance Hinton, NICOR Gas CEO and President Wendell Dallas, Loop Capital CEO Jim Reynolds, and Illinois Hotel and Lodging Association CEO Michael Jacobson. Gilmer noted in reporting that the trip will start with a visit to the Goodwood Festival of Speed in West Sussex. And according to a release from Pritzker's office, that stop will focus on discussing, quote, Illinois' commitment to electric vehicle manufacturing with automobile, energy, and supply chain industry leaders. The group will then head to London to meet with their counterparts to, quote, discuss strengthening economic cooperation between the state of Illinois and the United Kingdom. Last summer, then-Mayor Lori Lightfoot led a group of Chicago leaders to London and Paris for a similar trade mission. You can find the full list of the group traveling with the governor at chicagobusiness.com. Crane's John Pletz reported that federal prosecutors say Rishi Shah spent nearly $5,000 on dinner for five at Alinea on Valentine's Day while he was on trial for fraud at the Dirksen U.S. courthouse. And it's just one of the reasons they aren't buying the Outcome Health founder's assertion that millions of dollars in assets that have been frozen by the Fed since he was indicted nearly four years ago are interfering with his ability to hire attorneys of his choice to keep fighting after his April conviction. Prosecutors said in a filing that they want, quote, to restrain Shaw's assets and thereby prevent him from frittering away the money on gambling yachts and jets. And in court filings this week, prosecutors noted that Shaw tried to wire $100,000 
dollars each on May 23rd to accounts at sports betting sites Barstool Sportsbook and DraftKings, which were rejected. A DraftKings email included in government filings said, quote, we are returning the bank wire due to these reasons, negative news and closing account. Pletz noted in reporting that the filings are the latest examples of the contentious battle between Shaw and federal prosecutors over his assets, which has been going on for three years. Now that Shaw and fellow Outcome Health executives Shraddha Agarwal and Brad Purdy have been convicted of defrauding customers and investors, prosecutors are asking U.S. District Judge Thomas Durkin to allow them to seize Shaw's assets that were frozen before trial. Pletz also noted that the government's looking to seize millions in cash and investments belonging to Shaw that it says can be traced to the fraud in which the company overbilled pharmaceutical advertisers, inflating the company's financial results as it raised nearly a half billion dollars in funding from investors. Prosecutors also want authority to garnish other assets that could be necessary to cover restitution they'll seek when Shaw is sentenced in the fall facing up to 30 years in prison. But as Pletz also reported, Shaw's attorneys are fighting prosecutors' efforts, arguing that the government froze assets that weren't related to fraudulent activity involved in the case. They also contend that the government can't seek forfeiture of any assets until sentencing is complete, saying in a filing, quote, a criminal defendant has a constitutional right to use assets derived from non-criminal sources to support his defense. The filing went on to say, quote, the government has denied him that right for more than three years. A Chicago developer best known for its downtown apartment projects has set its sights on a big vacant office property in Deerfield, where it's teeing up what could be a big mixed-use complex with entertainment and retail uses. Crane's Danny Ecker, citing people familiar with the agreement, reported that LG Group is under contract to buy the former Walgreens Boots Alliance office buildings on the 1400 block of Lake Cook Road. The deal is said to be contingent upon Village of Deerfield approvals for a planned redevelopment of the 30 7.5-acre site just north of the Eden Spur Tollway. But the specifics of what LG plans for the property are unclear, Ecker noted, as the site includes five empty office buildings totaling 575,000 square feet along the south side of Lake Cook Road. But the Deerfield Board of Trustees recently offered a hint at what may be in the works. On July 5th, the board approved the creation of a new entertainment and limited retail business district for an area that includes the Lake Cook Road property. The new zoning lays out a range of retail, restaurant, and entertainment uses that could be allowed there pending approval of the Village Plan Commission and Board. Included on the list, sports-themed entertainment like golf driving ranges, mini-golf, skating rinks, and bowling alleys, restaurants without drive-through service but with live entertainment, a microbrewery, a comedy club, and a space for virtual reality. A multifamily residential development could also be part of a mixed-use project. An LG spokesperson declined to comment, but Ecker reported that a source familiar with the group's plan said its vision aligns with the new zoning district. The Deerfield assistant village manager told Cranes that the village hasn't received any formal proposal for the site, but established the new zoning district to signal to developers what types of uses they'd like to see if the property isn't revived as an office campus. But Ecker also reported that LG's contract to buy the former Walgreens buildings stands as a high-profile example of developers looking at new uses for empty, outmoded office campuses in the remote work environment. Companies cutting back on workspace have pushed office vacancy to a record high and driven down office property values, prompting some proposals to transform office buildings into something else. 
Ecker noted in reporting that Walgreens leases the buildings through August but no longer occupies them. The drugstore giant sold the buildings in 2013 to San Diego-based Realty Income in an $85 million sale leaseback deal. The buildings are owned today by Phoenix-based Orion Office REIT, which was spun off from Realty Income in 2021. And of note, the buildings that LG is under contract to buy are separate from Walgreens' existing headquarters, which is just west of the property on Wilmot Road. The future of that 40-plus acre headquarters property, where Walgreens has been based since 1975, is also in question, though. Walgreens earlier this year disclosed that it plans to sell off roughly two-thirds of its headquarters campus and consolidate workers into the remaining portion. The company also has a large office downtown at the redeveloped old post office. Fans visiting the United Center starting this fall will be drinking Pepsi products after a decade-plus run for Coca-Cola at the near Westside venue. The owners of the United Center and the teams this week announced a new seven-year agreement with PepsiCo as their official soft drink provider. And under that deal, brands like Pepsi, Starry, and Mountain Dew will replace drinks including Coke and Sprite at all United Center concessions and beverage stands. Coca-Cola replaced Pepsi this year at Wrigley Field and in 2016 at Guaranteed Radio. Field. But PepsiCo's deal with the Bulls and Blackhawks mark a return to the United Center for the company, which had a partnership there in the early 2000s, according to a PepsiCo spokesperson. In addition to new signage at concession areas, Pepsi also will have its brands on the Pepsi grab-and-go store in the United Center atrium building, which is a shop that uses Amazon's Just Walkout technology. New York-based PepsiCo, whose Gatorade, Tropicana, and Quaker Foods units are based in Chicago, has a big presence here at the old post office, where it moved its roughly 1,300 local workers after signing a big lease in 2019. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.